Well, the mystery of Christmas. Hey, it's good to be back uh, today, this morning, and uh, we've been away for a couple of weeks. Tim uh, Dix did a wonderful job while we were gone, but it really is good to be back, and I want us to take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 6. We're in a beginning a series of messages on the mystery of Christmas, and we're going to be taking some of those mysteries, like, for example, next week, uh, you talk about Christmas being all about love. Well, where's the love? The next week, uh, we're talking about joy. The next week, about peace. Where's the peace that Christmas promises? But this morning, we want to talk about hope and what that really is all about. I mean, after all, you just heard just a few moments ago, Tim Johnson uh, in a narrative talk about the difference between hope that we normally have and the hope that we have in God. There's a story that's told of an experiment that was done with some scientists, and they did it with mice, as they often do, and they had mice run through a maze. At the end of the maze was a piece of cheese, all right? And so after they did this for several days, they put a piece of plastic, like another wall in the maze, where they were going through it, and they came to the cheese, and they couldn't get to it. And they would just bump their nose up, up against that clear plastic piece of uh, material. And so day after day, they would do that. And so finally, the, the mice would go slowly through the maze, not in a hurry at all. They'd get to the end of the maze. They'd look at the cheese, knowing that they couldn't get to it. They'd just lay down. Well, after they were conditioned to do that, they removed the piece of plastic. And the mice at the end could get to the cheese anytime they wanted to, but when they came to the end of the maze, they just stopped and they laid down. They convinced themselves in their mind that there was no hope of getting that piece of cheese. They've conditioned themselves to think to themselves, I am what I am, I'm where I'm going to be, and there's no way to get the prize. Well, many people in our world today feel the same way. Can you imagine during this Christmas season being a homeless person? And maybe you're not there necessarily because of mental illness or addiction. You just found yourself going spiraling downward, not find, being able to find a job. Now you're sitting on a park bench. Your clothes are, 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 are matted and they're dirty and you smell. And you think to yourself, how can I even get a shower to go out and get a job? Or if I tell them I'm homeless, are they really going to give me a job? Uh, I don't have a home so I can't get welfare. Where, where do I start? There seems to be no hope of really getting this going. There's others maybe here. You're thinking to yourself, well, I've been praying for the same person over and over and over again. In fact, during this, in fact, Pastor, you asked, I think a couple of Christmases ago, if there was one thing that God could give you this Christmas, what would it be? And I named that, and I've been praying for that, but it just doesn't seem to ever come about, and you've lost hope. And how do I know that you've lost hope? How do you know? Because you really don't pray fervently for them anymore. I mean, they're on your mind every once in a while, and you do worry about them. But even as they come home, maybe for Christmas, or you see them during a family reunion, you're thinking to yourself, oh yeah, I need to pray for them. What we have done is kind of lost hope. The, the wall is there, and even if it's been removed, we can't get the prize. People lacking hope. The mystery of hope. Well, as we open to Hebrews chapter 6, we find a book that is really talking about faith and talking about Jesus Christ and how to have faith in him. And so as we're looking at this, understand the, the name of the book. 
is Hebrews. Therefore, it's to a Jewish audience. The illustrations, the stories are from an Old Testament perspective. He's reminding, the writer is reminding them of who they are, their, their past, the people that were involved in their past, all throughout the entire book. And so we want to look at four things this morning. First of all, we want to look at the necessity of hope, why it is needed, then where do we get it, how, do, how does it work, and how do we find it? Five themes of Advent today is hope. Well, first of all, why do we need it? Let's look back real quickly at the definition that I've been talking about and preaching about for many, many years, but let's just be reminded of it. As just a few moments ago, Tim Johnson said, hey, look, you've got hope in something and it really doesn't come about and over and over and over again, you know, it's not just wishful thinking. Well, the difference is between hope and wishful thinking and just hoping in God is, is not really, as far as the emotion of it, it there's, there is no difference. The difference is the object of it. When you just have wishful thinking and you're saying, well, I hope it doesn't rain today, you're trusting in the weather. If you're saying, well, I hope I get a bonus during Christmas, you're trusting in your work, your employer. When you're hoping something in the Bible, you're hoping in God. The object of that faith, that object of the hope is God. So let me give you sort of a new definition here that I've come up with this week um, or in the last few weeks about hope. Hope is enjoying the assurance, get the word assurance, that the object of your faith will come through for you to bring you joy and satisfaction. Hope is enjoying the assurance that the object of your faith will come through for you to bring you joy and satisfaction. It is the assurance, it, it's the future part of faith. Later in this book, you'll find a definition of faith. It says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So there's two parts to faith. One is in the future, the second conviction of things that you can't see. This, this hope we're talking about today is about faith for the future. And we need to keep in mind that we greatly underestimate how profoundly our character and actions are determined by the future we believe awaits us, says one theologian. And so what we're saying is, if we have hope, if we trust in the object of our faith, so much so that we believe it's gonna come to pass and God's gonna bring satisfaction and enjoyment in our life through whatever it is, that, that goal, that answer to prayer, when we have that, it's going to greatly influence our life. For example, um, we have some university students here and some people that have graduated before from uh, universities across the nation. And I can remember a time when I was a student at the University of Georgia, 18, 19 years old, and people would ask me, well, what do you want to do you know, when you grow up, you know, when you graduate? You know what I'm saying? And I would say, well, I'm, I'm a business major. I said, yeah, but what do you want to do when you, when, you, when you leave school? Well, I'm a business major. And my problem was I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no idea. And therefore, I wasn't very motivated to do what I needed to do in school and didn't do as well as I could have done. But then when God called me to the ministry, I felt led to then change to a college where I could prepare for the ministry, to Cole Falls, and my whole perspective on studying and learning 
completely changed. Why? Because there was a goal in mind. Now, for example, there's two ladies working in a hotel. Both of them are cleaning rooms. One of them is an apprentice. She's on an apprentice type of, um, of, um, of job. And she's going to learn custodial work. She's going to learn accounting. She's going to learn all these things. And she's prepared for it. She's going through it. Now she's cleaning rooms. And she, she has a different perspective with her, than her partner does who's just cleaning rooms. She's going to do this maybe for a while until she can find a, another job a better paying job maybe, maybe a little promotion somewhere. Totally different perspective. And so when you and I place our faith in God and really have an assurance that things are gonna happen in our life that are not happening now and the future is brighter than today, it's gonna change the way we live. And so as we look at this, we find in verse nine exactly what he's talking about. He says, though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we, sure, we feel sure for better things. By the way, this word better is the key word in the whole book. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Abraham. Jesus is better than the angels. He's just better. Better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to the full assurance of hope until the end. Well, if that was enough, I've already said all that. So what about verse 12? So that, so that. He's giving us the reason why he's praying for them to have hope. And he says this, that you may not be lazy, sluggish, but imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's saying to them very simply, when you have hope, you're not gonna be sluggish. You're not gonna be just going through the motions of life. You're gonna have, you're gonna have zeal for it. You're gonna be knowing that you're, you're going towards something. You can trust God. You can have endurance and even waiting. And in fact, in your devotional today, in your bulletin, you're gonna find something in there about hope and about waiting. And waiting is all about life. That's what you do. You wait in traffic. You wait in line for this. You wait for that. You wait for answers to prayer. You wait for God to do a work in someone else's life. It's all about the endurance. In fact, Hebrews 10.36, later as he begins to come to a conclusion in the book, he says, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And so when we have hope, we're going to have that endurance. We're just going to have confidence. Hey, look, all things work together for those who love God, for the good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I just know that God's going to come through because of his promises. So we look at this hope of the future and you say, well, that, that's difficult, pastor, because I, what, what do I need to feel about God? What do I need to know about God to really trust him? Number one, he's all-powerful, so therefore he can. Secondly, he loves you. He died on the cross for you, so he will. And thirdly, I think it's important to know that he doesn't change. In fact, in verse 18, he says two unchangeable things. God is unchangeable. We live in a world of change. We do. We, you know, the old saying is you can't step in the same river twice. Well, listen, you can't live in the same day twice. 
look what, what you know, I've got a watch on right now. It's, uh, you know, connected to my computer, connected to my phone, connected to my iPad. And I have no idea how to use it, you know, but there's a lot of complicated things going on here. I remember about 10, 12 years ago, and some of you might remember this, I've been here a long time. I gave an illustration, true story, about an elderly lady that was driving a car and she had a wreck. Now, it was just kind of a fender bender type of thing. It wasn't a, a serious accident, but the police came along and they were talking to her and said, what happened? She says, well, I put the car in cruise control and just let the wheel go and it just crashed, it wouldn't turn. See, a lot, none, none of you laughed over here. Why? Well, 10 years ago, you wouldn't think about a car driving itself. But we have people, especially really young people, maybe here in the congregation this morning, uh, elementary school kids that never knew a day. They never thought about a day where a car could not drive, certain cars couldn't drive themselves. Now, I wouldn't try that with just any car. Okay, you got to make sure it's the right one. But we're, we're having changes occur every day. I remember about 20, 30 years ago, somebody said that uh, life changes, every, everything turns over every seven years. And then somebody comes along in another few years, and, oh, it's every four years. Constantly changing. And we never pause, we just move on. It's like funerals. I did a funeral just a couple of weeks ago here, um, and we usually do them over in Legacy Hall, the building on the corner. And so there's traffic going by, and you can hear the traffic I'm often amazed as I'm sitting there, maybe listening to a testimony or a song, but the traffic just going by. And uh, you're, you're at the gravesite and you're close to a highway and people just coming by and blowing horn because of a traffic that they're ignoring what's going on. And you think to yourself, I know this is crazy, but I, I think to myself sometimes, shouldn't life just pause? I mean, somebody died. You know, somebody's gone. But we see that all over. And uh, I recall uh, one pastor telling a story about how he was waiting outside a room to, to visit someone, and he was near the nurse's station, and there was a couple of doctors there. And one, one doctor said, oh, yeah, the guy in 2201 just passed away. He just died. And he said, okay, what about the lady in 2305? And I thought, ooh, well, now wait a minute. The guy in 2201 just died. I mean, I, I kind of want my doctor to say, oh, that's too bad. That's, that's so sad. Maybe go off in a private room in his office and cry, you know, or something. If, if it were me, take the day off, you know. Just take the day off. In fact, some of that's one of the reasons why some of you get married. You want one person when you die, one person, just to at least take the day off, you know. So, but nobody does. Nobody stops. Everything's moving constantly. But here's what Malachi 3.6 tells us. It tells us, it says, For I am the Lord, and I do not change. That means his promises. That means his character never changes. And his promises can be yes. In fact, there are two things. Where do you, uh, where do you get it? Verse 13 tells us two things that, that are uh, pertinent to this passage. The promise and the oath. Two ways you get hope. The promise, he says, for him, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. He patiently waited. He obtained the promise. 
For people swear by something greater than themselves and all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Two things, a promise and an oath. <clears throat> the promise has to do with Abraham and the oath as well. And if you recall in the Old Testament, again, an Old Testament illustration to a Jewish audience, God made a promise. And he made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, and then he really comes back in 15, chapter 15, and really hones in on it. And he says, look, this is what I'm going to promise you. I'm going to make you not just a great nation, but the father of many nations. And Abraham is the, considered the father of the Jewish nation, father of the, uh, Islam, Muslim nation. He's considered the, the father, really, of the Christian nation as well. Many nations, he said. But he said, Lord, I'm old. I'm 75 years old. I don't have any children now. And you promised me a child and one day that child's going to you know, just populate the world with many nations? How can that be? He waited 25 years for that promise to be fulfilled. That's why I said he patiently endured. A hundred years old when Isaac was born. But here was the oath. He says later in this passage, he says, he says with the oath, and then in verse um, 17, he says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to his heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Now, what kind of oath was he talking about? Well, the oaths or the covenants in the Old Testament times were done when uh, people would cut animals in half. And they'd put one half here, we'll just say if this was the, the aisle that we're talking about, one half here, one half here, and there was a space in between to walk. Both people making the covenant would then walk through those broken, torn animals with an oath. And the oath was, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I break this promise, if I break this oath. And so God says, look, I didn't need to do that. But just so in the many generations to follow, you will realize my promise, I will make this oath. So we find here in the scripture that he says in verse 17, he's unchangeable and he's making a promise to us and he's making an oath to us as well. And you say, now, wait a minute. Pastor, you need to realize something here. My problem is, and I think this is where many people are, it's not that I don't trust God. Maybe you have trouble with that, but maybe you don't feel like you do. The problem is, you say, is not God's faithfulness, but my faithfulness. I don't want to be misunderstood here. You know, the Bible does say that God answers your prayer because you, do, you obey God and do the things that are pleasing in his sight, 1 John 3.22. There are other things in the Bible where it says, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. There's no question that we need to have the Lordship of Christ, Jesus Christ on the throne. But I'm telling you something, you'll never be completely faithful. You'll never be perfect. There's not a person here that shouldn't, I don't think, probably, that shouldn't pray more. I should pray more. I should read the Bible more. Yeah, me. I should go to church more. Well, maybe not that. You know, I go to church a lot, but I did skip the last two weeks. So, okay, at least here. And so I need to do more. I need to do less of this and more of this. And, I'm, and God, how can you answer my prayer? I'm just not as faithful as you. Listen, 
When Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, his body was broken. And since God passed through the broken body of Jesus, and he said, you don't need to make an oath. I will make an oath that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Nothing to work for, nothing to die for, nothing to be faithful for. Here is the promise of God and his salvation with a relationship that he wants with us. God has made this oath. And it's based, he says, on his character. Look, in verse 17, unchangeable character. Now, at the very beginning of this book, in chapter one, verses one through three, he lays the foundation of who Jesus Christ is. He says, long ago, and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son and by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. That means God owns, Jesus Christ owns everything. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. He appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. This Jesus created everything that we see. He is the radiance of his glory. That is the grandeur, the splendor, the presence of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is God in the flesh. Jesus himself said, I and the father are one. So here is God coming in the flesh, and he says, I don't change. My character never falters. I'm always truthful. I cannot lie. And I promise you this. I promise that all things will work for your good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I promise you that I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come again and receive you, that where I am there, you may be also. A promise from God's word. And so we look at this exact representation coming to us through his word and through this oath. And so how does it work? Verse 19 tells us, we have this a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, if you were a Jewish audience, you would understand that. You were raised in a Hebrew household. You were raised to understand the ways of Judaism. You were understanding the law of the Old Testament. You understood what that was all about. But what about us? An anchor. It's a nautical illustration is what he brings out here. Basically, he's saying it's like a boat. You know, you take a boat out, you, gotta, you have an anchor if you want it to stay. Uh, my brother-in-law has a boat, and sometimes we've been out on that boat. And um, when we're in Georgia, at least, we get out and kind of swim in the lake a little bit, kind of float around, all that, just kind of cool off. And uh, you wouldn't want to do that, by the way, in Lake Jessup or anything like that. You know, you just don't want to do that, not recommending that at all. Might run across somebody, something that's kind of hard and leathery there. But in, in Georgia, this is pretty much uh, pretty safe. But in order to get the boat to be steady and not move around, because you don't want that. I mean, if the boat were just, we all get out of the boat, the boat floats off, we're swimming after the boat. That would be something for, good thing for YouTube or something, but not, not good for us. So you anchor the boat. And the anchor is always the chain. The anchor is tied to the boat. And then the anchor part of it goes down into the lake, a place where we cannot go. It's a place that we cannot see. 
And he says, the anchor first is tied to yourself. But then the other end of the anchor, like dropping it into the bottom of a lake or an ocean, is tied to something else. He says, it goes behind the veil. Now, to the Jewish audience, they would know that in the temple, there was the outer court. And that's where Jews and Gentiles, anybody could go. And then there was the inner court. Well, that was only the Jewish people could go there. But then there was the holy place within the inner court. And the holy place was where only the priests could go. Finally, there was this little spot, spot within the Holy of Holies called, I mean, the holy place called the Holy of Holies. And it was a time where only the high priest could go behind this veil that separated, this partition that separated the holy place from um, the Holy of Holies. And he could only go behind there once a year. And what would he see? He would see the Ark of the Covenant. And it was such a fearful thing. In fact, if he touched it, he would die. And so they tied it, always tied something around the priest. So when he walked behind the veil, if he touched it by accident and died, they could pull him out because they couldn't go beyond the, behind the veil. And he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat once a year for the Jewish people. They understood all that for the sins of Israel for the, for the coming year. And says, so, let me tell you about this anchor. He said, one end is tied to you and the other end is tied to God. He's the anchor of your soul. The chain is there to be tied to the very presence of God in your life. That's how it works. That's the promise. That's the oath that he's talking about. And notice, he says here behind the curtain, verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He's gone but before us, dying on the cross, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, there's two priests in the Old Testament, and I, I won't elaborate on that. That's chapter 7 of Hebrews. But the priesthood of Aaron was temporary. The priesthood of Melchizedek was forever. And so, lastly this morning, as we come to a conclusion, how do we find it? Well, there's really two things here. There are two messages to this book, two basic audiences. One was the Hebrew Christian. The other was the Hebrew person that had never known Christ. So obviously it goes back and forth talking to each one. And so let me say this. How do you find the anchor of the soul when you don't have it? You do so by placing all of your faith and trust in a new object, Jesus Christ. You can't split this. You can't one day mentally just think to yourself, no, I'm really trusting in my boss. I'm trusting my business. I'm really trusting in my prayer life. I'm really trusting in my church to do something, my school. But I'm trusting in God too. No, it's, it's totally placing your hope in Jesus Christ. If you don't do that, then your object's going to always be split. You'll never have peace. You'll never have assurance. You'll never have true hope. So how do you do that? You, you do that by receiving Christ and placing him as Lord of your life. Begin to follow him. Now, I know a lot of you are saying, well, I don't know what that's like. That's the fear, isn't it? You, you've never received Christ. You don't know what it's like. At least that was my fear. I reminded myself of a little boy playing in the mud 
And granddad comes along and says, hey, we're going to take you to the beach. He says, I don't know anything about a beach. I like it here in the mud. I mean, it's not anything great, but it's something to do. It's a way to occupy my time. And playing in the mud is a whole lot better than going to bed or taking a nap. or The the beach, what is the beach? Oh, it's this beautiful place, dirt everywhere. You'll love it. There's water. You can build sandcastles. Haven't you seen one of these on TV? No. I've heard about it a little bit. My mom and dad's talked about a beach, but I haven't really paid much attention. I don't know what the beach is about, but the beach is so much better than the mud hole. Now, in your life, you have some things that are satisfying, some things that are not. But God is offering you something, the peace, the love, the joy, the hope. He's offering you that and forgiveness of sin and the ultimate hope of knowing that if you were to die today, you know for sure you'd go to heaven. That is the ultimate hope. With everything that's going on in this world, I know that it's all gonna work for my good, even if it means the final end, and that is I go to heaven when I die. That's the assurance. How about you? Would you like to step out on faith? Just step out on faith and just say, yeah, I don't know everything. I don't know everything about the Bible. I don't know everything about the Christian life. I don't even know anything about this life I'm living. But I'm willing to step out on faith and trust the unchangeable nature and character and the promises and the oaths of God through Jesus Christ. That's the prayer of your heart. I'm going to ask you to pray with me right now with heads bowed and eyes closed. In the quietness of this moment, would you right now by faith just pray to God and say, God, I want this hope. I want to know that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. I want to know that you're walking with me and concerned about me every day of my life. So I invite you into my heart asking for forgiveness of sins based on the cross and what Jesus did for me there. And I put you on the throne of my life to guide me. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.